So we're continuing in the book of John, and I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you don't have a Bible, I hope you have some electronic version. And whatever you have with you, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16, continuing in this uh, upper room discourse the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he instituted the Lord's table, and the night in which he gave us a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit. So our text this morning is John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. 16, 5 through 15. I invite you to turn there with me. And since we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, that is breathed out by the Spirit of God, profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and since... It is given to us once for all. I ask you to give attention to it and honor to it by standing as we read John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, the Word of God. And Jesus said, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and the faith once delivered to us for all, may we contend earnestly for it. Would you give to us that ministry full and evidence in the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning that he would fill us with his spirit of expectation and truth, that we would understand who you are and why you have sent your Son. So draw us close to you, Lord God, through your word which you have delivered. We pray that we would understand the advantage that you've given to us of the Holy Spirit in this age. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Advantage, Holy Spirit. Uh, What is the advantage of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is always an intriguing subject, isn't he? Uh, It's always somewhat mysterious. Whenever theologians write or talk about the Holy Spirit, they invariably will say he is the neglected 
uh, person of the Trinity. We hear a lot about the Father. We hear a lot about the Son, but not that much about the Holy Spirit. I would suggest to you that that's by the Holy Spirit's design because his role is to shine a light upon Jesus Christ, and we'll say more about that. It is true that we often neglect the Holy Spirit in a theological category, and we put him into a theological category like ecclesiology and, and soteriology, but he's in the first order, the first class of theology, and that is God, because he is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So theology proper, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the the first order of business with the Father and the Son to understand all theology. Yes, because of charismatic and Pentecostal excesses, some avoid the discussion of the Holy Spirit for fear of falling into mysticism and, and, and going overboard. John MacArthur, that looks like I erased that, never mind. Um, (laughs) He said some stuff. Basically, he said this. He said, those who, uh, those who, 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 who say that they're talking most about the Holy Spirit are talking least about the Holy Spirit because they attribute to him things that he has not said and things that he has not done. And the scriptures are clear what he has said and what he has done. And so we want to be clear about that this morning. In this passage, we have the last of Jesus' teachings about the helper, the paraclete, and he has, he has brought this, this subject up numerous times. And after this passage, he will not mention the Holy Spirit until chapter 20 when he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So he's about done. And the teaching of Jesus on the Holy Spirit in John, if we did not have the truths that Jesus gave to us about the Holy Spirit in John, we would be so much in the dark about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has enlightened for us so much about the, under, the, the understanding of the Holy Spirit. So we are at a great advantage at the departure of Jesus so that the Holy Spirit would come. And as we just read, you saw that. Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away. When I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. What advantage then? The Holy Spirit, what advantage? First of all, verses 5 through 7. He fulfills the plan of God, the plan of the Father for the ages. The Father has a plan for the ages of redemption from before the foundation of the world. He knew everything beginning to end. Before he created this world, he knew how everything would turn out. And he had a plan for your redemption and my redemption and for all of history and all of church history. And the Holy Spirit has a part in that. He is a, has a, an integral part in fulfilling the ultimate plan of the ages of the Father. It's huge. It's no small thing. He's not just some addendum to church history or to the life of Christ He fulfills the ministry of Christ. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, But now, and he's focusing on this very moment, I am going to him who sent me. That phrase is pregnant with meaning. I am going to him who sent me. Jesus has talked about this over and over and over again in in John's Gospel. He sent me. I did not come on my own. He sent me. He has a mission to complete. 
And so when he says, I am going to him who sent me, it means a lot. Maybe they don't understand it all at this point, but we understand it at this point. He's not just going to get on a bus and go across town to his father's house. When he says, I am going to the one who sent me, this is language that he's used over and over again. He is speaking of the hour. The hour that came in verse chapter 12, we, we saw that. And he has been talking about that throughout the book of John. My hour has not yet come. His hour of suffering and exaltation has come at this point. So when he says, I am going away, it, it means all of this. In a few minutes, he's going to be betrayed. He is going to be arrested. He is going to be unjustly tried. He is going to be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. He is going to be sentenced to death. He is going to be beaten and mocked and scourged. He is going to be nailed to a cross. He is going to be killed. He is going to be buried. He is going to be raised. And he is going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. When he says, I am going to him who sent me, that's what he's talking about. This is God's plan. This is the plan of the ages. They didn't understand it. We understand it better than they understood it. Do you realize that? The last step of returning to the Father is the fulfillment of all of his ministry of redemption. It is the completion of his ministry. And so he says to them, and none of you ask me where am I where I'm going. How come you're not asking me that, he said. But they have, haven't they? Chapter 13, 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? This is all upper room discourse stuff. Chapter 14, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. So they have asked, where are you going? But in what sense have they not asked? They don't ask with real understanding. They don't have a desire to truly know where he is going. Their question is is one of self-interest because sorrow has filled their hearts. It's disastrous to them that that their Savior is going away. Their concern has been themselves. It has not been on the focus and the purpose of the mission of Christ because they don't understand it all. They don't understand that His departure is the completion of His mission of redemption. So that when he says, I am going to him who sent me, all they know is, yeah, he's going away. 1428, Jesus said, you heard us, I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I go to the Father. But instead they're filled with sorrow. If they knew where he was going and why he was going there, they would have rejoiced that the plan of the ages was being fulfilled through the ministry of Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation. D.A. Carson gives an illustration, I think explains it fairly well. It's like a young boy who's been promised an afternoon of fishing with his father. And his father unexpectedly says, "Ah, Son, I got called away to work. I can't go. And his son says, Oh, Dad, where are you going? And he's not so much concerned about Where he's going, his focus is on his disappointment. And so it is with the disciples. Their focus is on their own personal disappointment. 
I would add to that illustration that that father then says, son, look, if I go away for this afternoon to, 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 to work, when I come back, we're not only going to have an afternoon of fishing, but we are going to have two weeks alone to fish. It will be better if I go now. That's what Jesus is saying. They want to cling to their Jesus, their personal Jesus. And they want him for themselves. They don't want to share him with the world. And that's exactly what is at stake, the world. He says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, and there's no uncertainty here, He will certainly go away and certainly send the helper. The helper will not come to you. But if I go, same language that we saw last week, I will send him to you. Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father. Father sent the Son. The Son sends the Spirit from the Father. You see the work of the Trinity. It's to their advantage, it's to his advantage, it's to our advantage, it's to everyone's advantage. This is better that Jesus goes away. Hypothetically, it could not have happened, but if he had not gone away, what would it meant? It means that he did not die for our sins. It means that he did not go to the cross. It means that he did not complete our redemption, but he did. And the advantage is this, all of the things that the Holy Spirit will do. Let me just show you a few and these are a few. These are just a few. Um, I, we, we could spend the, uh, several weeks talking about that. He will form the church in Acts 2. He will be the agent of the new birth, John 3. He will be the agent of our sanctification, Galatians 5:16 and following. He will impart spiritual gifts to each believer, 1 Corinthians 12. He will be the source of truth to write the New Testament. John 16, we're going to come to that. He will mediate the presence of Jesus in this age. Jesus at this time is limited to a human body in one place at one time. When he goes away and sends his spirit, then he, is, he through his spirit is everywhere. And the, spirit of, uh, the Holy Spirit mediates that presence of Christ throughout the age. So these are just a few things. Many, 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 many more. The Holy Spirit does not cut short the ministry of Christ. The Holy Spirit magnifies it and fulfills it. And the mission of Jesus is inextricably linked to the mission of the Holy Spirit. They both complete the overall plan of the Father for the ages. So a couple of lessons for us. Don't cling to your personal Jesus to the exclusion of the need of the world. Cling to Jesus. Hold on to him for dear life. He's all that there is. You are complete in him. There is no more than him. So yes, hold on to him. But what has happened oftentimes in 20th century, 21st century evangelicalism, it's all about me and Jesus and my personal relationship with him. Just you know, He's my bud, and I spend time in the Bible, and he makes me feel so good. For what purpose? Just your own personal edification? Do you see how the disciples were holding on to him? They, they refused to let go for a greater purpose. 
Not that we let go of Christ, but that we do not hold on to some personal sense that I, I, I'm just satisfied. I'm just fulfilled. I don't need to do anything else, but just have this personal time with Jesus and that's all that I need. Don't do that. He came to be shared with the world and the disciples didn't understand it, but we do, so we should not be like them and think only about how he fulfills our needs. Second of all, we live in the best of times. We do. You know, um, Dickens said it was the best of times and the worst of times and the tale of two cities. This is the best of times. Many people say, oh, if I could have just been at Mount Sinai and saw the theophany of God and the power of the the parting of the Red Sea. If I could have walked with Jesus along the Sea of Galilee and saw him do miracles and raising Lazarus and listened to the Sermon on the Mount, that would have been the time to live. No. You know more and you have more available to you now than the disciples had while they were on the earth with Jesus. Do you realize that? It is to your advantage that he went away and you have more available to you now. These are the best of times. This is a difficult world, I understand that. But what a time to be alive as a Christian. What an incredible time for us to be alive. So, he fulfills that eternal plan of the ages from the Father. And second... In verses 8 through 11, he fuels the power of the gospel in this world. He fuels the power of the gospel. Paul said in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Jew and Gentile alike. Anyone who believes in Christ, it is the power of God for salvation and it is the the Spirit of God that fuels that power. He says in verse 8, And when He comes, and I'll point out, uh, and He, when He comes, I'll point out what I said uh, last week, He uses very emphatically a masculine Personal pronoun, personal pronouns of gender are important because they declare the reality of the created order. He didn't say when they come or when she comes or whatever, he is a he, the Holy Spirit is a he, the Father is a he, the Son is a he, the Spirit is a he. Very, very specifically, God has been, has declared himself and revealed himself with masculine personal pronouns. And it's very emphatically emphatic here. When he, he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He has been called the helper. He has been called the comforter, the paraclete for believers. But we see here his ministry in the world is that of a prosecutor where he prosecutes the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. This word convict can mean to just make something known, to uncover some truth. But here it means, in most of the places where it's used in the New Testament, it means to uncover truth toward guilt, to uncover the truth that one is guilty of something. 
Here we see the word is, a, he's using it again in that legal sense that he uncovers the guilt of the world. And so he says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. In Romans uh, 1, he said, excuse me, in John chapter 3, he said, he who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe in me has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What is the sin of not believing in, in Jesus? It is idolatry. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. There is only one God. Everyone worships something. And when someone does not believe in Jesus as God, they're believing in something else as God. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. They're worshiping the creation, matter, um, nature, other, rather than the creator. They're worshiping the Buddha. They're worshiping a false god of a cult. They're worshiping um, um, money. They're worshiping uh, family. They're worshiping something. Everyone has something that they bow down to and controls their life. But to not believe in the Son of God is the ultimate of all sins. It is a sin because it is not recognizing him as the Son of God. They do not believe in me. Sin has a place in the gospel message and it is the Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin. Too often, the gospel message is just presented like, just believe in Jesus and you'll have a groovy life. Believe in Jesus and you get to go to heaven. Well, why must I believe in Jesus? Because of sin. The sin of guilt before a holy God must be laid out in the gospel message. Otherwise, there is no salvation. One must understand their guilt of sin before God and their need of a Savior in order to come to salvation. Here's a positive example of this in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching and telling them all that Jesus came to do and why he came. And what was the ultimate response? Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced in the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They recognized their guilt. This was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He pierced their heart. He nailed them to, a wall, to the wall that they had been wrong about Jesus. They had not been worshiping the true God. They had not understood that the, the Lord of glory had been crucified for them, that he was Lord of all. And that's a positive example. And that's if you are here this morning and God is convicting you and making known to you your own sin, your own unbelief of him, him, his, then respond in the same way that the people did on the day of Pentecost. What shall I do? And his response was, believe on Jesus and repent. Second of all, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, true righteousness. How did the, the Jews measure right, righteousness? They measured it by keeping the law, right? And so there was this kind of like grading on a curve. That's how we measure righteousness sometimes too. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I'm better than them. 
They're worse than me. We don't usually say, I'm better than them. We usually say, they're worse than I am. But we grade on the curve, but God does not grade on the curve. There is a standard of righteousness that is perfection. And I have a bunch of verses to give to you about that. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All of our righteousness, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. If we were all Hebrew speakers and Hebrew writers, we read this verse, we would all gasp. Because what he is saying is, our righteousness is like a soiled menstrual cloth. That's exactly what it says. That's the comparison of our righteousness to his righteousness. It's hard to picture, isn't it? I mean, to picture it is, it's, it's, it defiles our minds to even conjure that up, that what that looks like and what it means. And yet that's what Isaiah said. You want to know what, what righteousness is? You want to know what the righteousness of men is like? This is what it is. That's all it is. There is it's no greater than that. And we have a tendency to think, well, yeah, but, you know, I, I've been in Sunday school for 33 years. I've, I've been, you know, I've been volunteering I haven't cheated on my taxes or my spouse. I haven't lied to the government. I haven't murdered anybody. Certainly God will take that into consideration that I've been a successful businessman. No. We bring nothing to the table. We bring no righteousness. Romans 3 and Romans 3.10 and 3.23 says, There is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, 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 all. We all fall short of a standard of perfection, of holiness, of righteousness that only God possesses. And we fall short of that. And we are in need of rescue. This is the gospel. And the Holy Spirit convicts people of this righteousness that you don't have it. That this is what it is. This is the righteous standard that is required. It is greater than anything we could ever hope for. That's why Romans 1.16 and 17 say this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his righteousness, his faith. Because it is the righteousness of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the gospel in a nutshell, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became my sin. He became your sin. And what do we get in return? His righteousness. His purity, His holiness, His godliness. 
all that comes from Christ, all that he is as the Son of God, we become sons of God. All because of what he did for us. Verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, the Holy Spirit powerfully convicts the world about judgment. The ruler of this world, Satan, was judged when he was cast out of the garden. He was judged at the giving of the law. He was judged at the incarnation. He was judged when Jesus never sinned. He was judged particularly at the cross of Christ. That was the final nail in his coffin. Ultimately, the cross of Christ, Satan was judged. But his sentence and his ultimate demise will not be carried out until the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. In the meantime, he's still the ruler with a small r, and he's still the god of this age with a small g, but he's defeated. He's defeated, and we don't fear him. Judgment is part of the gospel message and it convicts the world, not only the judgment of Satan, but their own judgment. If you are fearful of being judged before God, that's fine. That's, that's a proper motivation to come to Christ. Some people say, well, we need, people need to know that God loves them, not that he's going to judge them. People need to know both. Because he loves them, he will not judge them if they turn to him in faith. But they should fear that if they do not, then they will be judged. This judgment is part of the salvation. Christ took our judgment upon himself. A negative example of this, someone not responding to a conviction, is Felix. In the book of Acts, Paul is in prison preaching to him. Acts 24, 24, and 25 say this. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ, Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment, in self-control, read what? Sin. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix says, he becomes frightened and says, go away. For the present, when I find time, I'll summon you. Did he ever? No. If you are under conviction about sin, righteousness, and judgment, today's the day to respond. Not say, oh, I'll do it another day. This is a fatal flaw, a fatal mistake for people under conviction by the Holy Spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment to say, I just don't want to deal with this now. Maybe later when I'm older, I'm married, I finish school, etc. That's what I thought. God had different plans for me. Some lessons. Our advantage of the Spirit is that the work of salvation is His, not ours. We don't win anyone to Christ. The work of salvation is of, salvation is of the Lord. We are His instruments, but He works through us, and it is His work through us that brings people to Himself. It's not our work. It's His. He convicts people unto salvation, He is the one who brings people to Christ through us and he gives them new life. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's his work. 
Second lesson, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness for Christ. We don't win people to Christ, but you are a powerful witness. You, filled with the Spirit and obedient to His Word, are a powerful witness in this world to bring people to salvation. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come, has come upon you. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Paul said, you do not belong to Him. By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You have the Holy Spirit. And he says, you have the power. His power. And you shall be my witnesses. His witnesses. Not to the church, not to your greatness or your goodness. We are witnesses to Him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth, we continue to fulfill the Great Commission by being powerful witnesses by the power of the Spirit. So, the Spirit of God fulfills that great plan of the ages. The Spirit of God is, is powerful to fuel that power of the gospel in the world today. And finally, in verses 12 through 15, He enfolds for us the truth and the glory of Christ in the church. He unfurls the truth of who Jesus is and the Word of God, and He makes known the glory of Christ, who Jesus is in the church, in His church. Verse 12, Paul, or, uh, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They don't have time. In a few minutes, Judas is going to show up. They don't have the ability they, they, they don't have the capacity to understand all that Jesus has to say to them. So he says in verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, again emphatic, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears from the Father and from the Son, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. In chapter 14, Jesus said, the Spirit would come and be, bring remembrance to the disciples of what he had told them and taught them. They will remember what he taught, and now he's saying he's going to teach you new things. He's going to teach you all things. His truth is sufficient, not all things about science and math and geography, but all things about Jesus, everything that they need to know all that the Spirit has revealed is sufficient. It is enough. We can spend our lives learning it and, and trying to live it. It is sufficient. And this would come through the writing of the New Testament by the apostles. Second Peter 1.20 says this, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Old Testament and the New Testament were written by the Holy Spirit through men. And so when Jesus says to his disciples in, in chapter uh, 16, verse 13, he will guide you into all truth and he will speak all that you need to know, he's talking about this. 
You have it in your hands. It's the best of times. This is the advantage that we have to live in this age. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God. That word, you've heard it before. Theonoustos, God breathed. That means the Spirit of God breathed out the word and it was inscripturated, written down for us by these men moved by the Holy Spirit. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequate. Every good work. We have all that we need. We are equipped with everything that is necessary pertaining to life and godliness. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus say this, He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You see the chain? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit to us. Beautiful picture of the Trinity. The Father knows best, right? Here on this Father's Day, we have an ultimate Father in heaven who knows best. He knows all. He gives that knowledge to the Son, who gives that knowledge to the Spirit, who gives that truth to us. What a time to be alive. The Holy Spirit always glorifies Christ. He says, He will glorify me. He never calls attention to himself. J.I. Packer talks about this as the floodlight ministry of Christ, that the Spirit of God is like a floodlight that illumines the person and the words and the works of Jesus Christ. We have these floodlights out in in our uh, parking lot, and when people drive by and they see our beautiful uh, grounds that Ed takes care of and other people, and we have beautiful property, but when when they drive by on a summer night and they see those lights, do they go, wow, look at those incredible lights. No, they'll say, that's nice property. What's the purpose of those lights? It's to illumine something else. It's like a, a light behind you, a reading light. It, it casts over your, over your shoulder to show you what's before you. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He never says, hey, look at me. So whenever we do something for Christ and we exalt Him and we talk about Him, you can bet that the Holy Spirit is always involved. It wasn't like, well, I didn't remember the Holy Spirit, so it wasn't Spirit-filled. Yes, it was. If Christ is exalted... The other thing that he does is he mediates the presence of Jesus. Let me just read to you a little bit from J.I. Packer's book, uh, Keep in Step with the Spirit. What is the essence, heart, and core of the Spirit's work today? What is the central focal element of his many-sided ministry? Is there one basic activity to which his work of empowering, enabling, purifying, and presenting must be related in order to be fully understood? Is there a single divine strategy that unites all these facets of his life-giving action as means to one end? The Spirit makes known the personal presence in and with the Christian and the church of the risen, reigning Savior, the Jesus of history, who is the Christ of faith, 
Scripture shows that since the Pentecost of Acts 2, this essentially is what the Spirit is doing all the time as He empowers, enables, purges, and leads generation after generation of sinners to face the reality of God. And He does it in order that Christ may be known, loved, trusted, honored, and praised, which is the Spirit's aim and the purpose of God the Father too. This is what, in the last analysis, the Spirit's new covenant ministry is all about. This is found often in the statement, I am with you. The truth of the matter is this, he goes on, the distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant is to so mediate Christ's presence to believers, that is to to give them, to give us, such knowledge of this presence with them as their Savior, Lord, and God, that three things keep happening. First, personal fellowship with Jesus. Second, personal transformation of character unto Jesus' likeness. Third, the Spirit-given certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted through Christ into the Father's family so as to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's a ministry of the Spirit. So in conclusion, advantage, Holy Spirit. Though God's Spirit, through God's Spirit, in God's Word, we... We possess all we need to bring glory to Christ. And our purpose is the Spirit's purpose, to glorify Him. Not to glorify us, not to glorify Valley Bible Church, or people, or pastors, but is to glorify Him. Amen? Pray with me. We ask your help in doing this, O Lord, our God, For we know that we are powerless and we can do nothing apart from you. That is truly what this means. That we are able to give to you our praise and our adoration. And we are able to do so through the power of your spirit. May we as a church bring honor and glory to Christ our Lord and our Savior. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Before we close, we have just a moment. I think we're going to do this now. Is that right? Of church business. You know, we spent some time talking about church membership. You may have gotten into your hands this morning. Document called uh, Bylaws and Governing Principles. Seems like a lot of work. This has been in in existence for a long, long time um, in about the same length. We've adjusted it the last few weeks in talking about church membership as we're moving forward with this. We've added a few things, a couple of things to the doctrinal statement, the core beliefs, for instance, about um, uh, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and a couple other minor additions regarding um, how we will uh, manage church membership going forward. But for the most part, this is pretty much the same, very similar to as it has been for how many years? Long time, long time. This guy's been here for most of it, all of it, right? Some of you, yeah, some of you, thank you for being such faithful members. So I want to show you, um, here is the Old Covenant of Fellowship. It's pretty long, 
And um, that's the old covenant of fellowship. Here's the new one, okay? It's, it's shorter. It's, it's just that top part right there. And uh, we worked hard and long in making sure that this would be something that is simple to, to read and understand. Um, what we would like you to do is we want you to read this, yes, um, but if you are going to declare that you're a member of Valley Bible Church, and that's what we've been saying all along, you are, we are members of Christ, we're all members of one another, but this is a church, a local church called Valley Bible Church. Would you please declare that you are a member of Valley Bible Church? We've not had uh, a way to do that in the past. And so we're asking you to do that. So read this, and um, prayerfully, and being led by God, we pray that you will sign this and bring this back to us next week or in the next couple of weeks. But let us know that uh, you are planting your flag. Uh, fathers, lead your families. It's a good time to, to lead your families in this as well. But notice this is a declaration of me- membership. By the way, our, our official name, you may not know, is Valley Bible Church of Spokane, even though we're in Spokane Valley. But anyway, we talked about that this week. We're not in Spokane. Anyway, um, our website is SpokaneBBCValleyBibleChurch.org. But this is our official name. But it says this very simply. Having read the bylaws and governing principles, just like the Old Covenant said you would do the same, um, agreeing fully with the core beliefs, that's the, the doctrinal statement, of course. We want you to understand and believe and, and assent to the doctrinal statement. Um, assenting to submit biblically to one another um, and to the elders... In Ephesians 5, it says being filled with the Spirit, one of the results is, is Spirit-filled worship and submitting to one another and all the appropriate authorities in the name of Christ. Um, we chose that language rather than the language of Hebrews 13 that says obey your leaders. We thought you may not like that, obey your leaders. But uh, there is this humble submission biblically, which is somewhat pregnant with meaning because that means if we're out of line, you, there is biblical recourse in the Scriptures for you to call us out and to let us know. And so you are not required to follow unbiblical leadership, right? Got that? Okay. And affirming the purpose and objectives and responsibilities of church members found in the articles. Very simply, I declare I'm a member of Valley Bible Church of Spokane. So we encourage you to read this prayerfully. We encourage you to, if this is uh, what you would like to do, join us and uh, declare your membership of Valley Bible Church but also for the sake of, of history, we have one other thing at the bottom that says this. In recognition of the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, in recognition of the fact that many have served faithfully as members of Valley Bible Church for years and wishing to thankfully acknowledge this reality, consider adding the date you first identified with Valley Bible Church. According to the old covenant, there was a way to, to say, well, I just say that I'm a member Say you've been here for 15 years. Say you've been here for 20 or 30 years. Put down that date because we want to we recognize your, your commitment to Valley Bible Church. It doesn't start today or next week. It started for many of you months, years, and decades ago. And we want to honor your commitment to Valley Bible Church. So thank you very much. And um, we ask that you uh, prayerfully consider these truths.